Welcome to the Diabetes Primetime Podcast, where we talk to diabetes experts about how to live a long, healthy life with diabetes. If you'd like to learn more, visit us at www.diabeteswhattoknow.com or just search Diabetes What to Know on Facebook. We're always posting new articles, videos, and tools that make living a healthy life easier. Welcome to Diabetes Primetime, everybody. Tonight, we are talking with diabetes psychologist Susan Guzman about how to manage the things about diabetes that drive us crazy. You won't want to miss this. Stay tuned. Susan, it is such a privilege to get to talk with you today. Thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. So you've really dedicated your life to helping people with diabetes manage the unique challenges that come with diabetes. So tell us what you love about being a diabetes psychologist. Why I love being a diabetes psychologist is really... When I can help somebody make a change or uh, have a better relationship with their diabetes, as a psychologist, it's so rewarding because I can help someone not only change how they feel about diabetes, but perhaps make changes that help change the course of their lives. And it's very rewarding. Absolutely, because we don't realize sometimes how much our health impacts our lives. So you're really helping people work through the issues that have big downstream implications for their health and their life. Absolutely. And when I got I got started on accident as a diabetes psychologist. And, and so the other part that I really love is that it's such an unaddressed problem. And so that when I'm able to bring knowledge and awareness and a message of hope to people with diabetes, it's oftentimes the first time they've heard it. And so that's sad, uh, but as a psychologist that's able to you know, focus in that area, it's actually also very rewarding. Absolutely. All right, Susan, we asked in our Facebook group, what are the things about diabetes that are really frustrating? And I would say the number one thing we heard was that the thing that drives people crazy about diabetes is a lot of times you feel like you've done everything right and it's not reflected in the numbers. Robin says she hates the way the numbers jump so much when you thought you did so good. What would you say to people who feel like their hard work doesn't always pay off? Firstly, I'd say you're not alone. That's the number one thing I hear about too. Um, when you feel like your efforts aren't, aren't worth the work and diabetes doesn't follow the rules, that is the number one predictor really of burnout. When you feel like what you're doing doesn't matter, why would you bother? Right. And so helping figure out what the barriers are and looking at individualized solutions is really where you go with that. But that 75% of people with diabetes will at least um, report having mild struggle with that feeling of unpredictable numbers and feeling discouraged when you see something that you can't explain. So based on that, I mean, I think the logical next question is, how can we stay motivated, you know, to keep doing the things that we know are going to help us be healthy in the long run when sometimes in the short run, we're not seeing Mm -hmm. the, the payoff? Yeah, I think that a lot of times keeping your eye on the sort of the bigger prize, you know, that why are you bothering? Mm -hmm. Because I think the individual numbers can really make people feel like they're going to go crazy. But really focusing on larger, like an individual high blood glucose numbers is not causing long-term damage. Right. And even though when you look at that individual number, it can become a judgment. So instead of seeing 220, for example, you in your mind, you're seeing you blew it or what right. did you do wrong? Right. And so it becomes a judgment instead of just information for taking action. Yes. And people have had a lot of help getting to that place because there is so much judgment in diabetes. But, you know, focusing on sort of at the new metric is really being, you know, referred to as the time and range. Mm-hmm. And that's like, you know, how often your numbers are in target range or also like looking at A1C. So rather than individual numbers, 
is your A1C in a safe place? And looking at sort of larger scale numbers instead of getting driven crazy by individual ones. Okay, so I hear two really good pieces of advice there. One, recognizing that every number is just information. It's not good Mm -hmm. or bad. It's one of the reasons why we talk about checking blood sugar rather than testing Mm -hmm. blood sugar because it's not a test. Um, But two, also recognizing, you know, a single number is not the end of the world. And, you know, one of my favorite videos of our endocrinologist, Rich Jackson, you know, he talks about like individual Mm -hmm. glucose numbers you see on your meter aren't a big deal. What you want to do, as you just said, is focus on making sure your A1C is in a safe place. And if it is, mm-hmm. and you're not having lows, you are doing awesome. Right. And and I think that, you know, also thinking about the idea of safer, because it's what's discouraging for people who don't have their diabetes at target is, is like, for example, someone might start with, with an A1C of 11%, mm-hmm. and then they work really hard and their A1C is a 9%. Now, in terms of risk reduction, that's huge. Right. However, when they go to get feedback from their, their health healthcare professional, they may not hear, great job. They might hear, you know, that's still high, and you're not near target, and that's unsafe, and you have uncontrolled diabetes, and, and all these messages that don't recognize All the hard work. Yeah. yeah, or or safer. Yes. Even if even if is nine is the best you can do, that's safer than an eleven. And what we've learned from a lot a lot of these follow up studies for people who've had diabetes a long time is that you don't have to be perfect to have well managed diabetes. And in fact, <laughs> right. trying to get to perfect may sabotage you and make you just burned out and frustrated altogether. Right, and there really isn't such a thing as perfect <laughs> diabetes. So. <laughs> <laughs> Very good point. <laughs> so I know another thing that's frustrating to people is something that Cindy st- described. She says, I can do the exact same thing twice in a row and get different results on my meter. Val says the way the numbers go up and down drives her crazy. So what would you say to someone who's kind of frustrated with this other aspect of the numbers, that it is just so variable? Well, I mean, again, this is that's that what that means is you have diabetes. Somebody described the experience of having diabetes as having a manual transmission pancreas. <laughs> and I've never heard that. That's fantastic. And, and unfortunately, we don't have the tools yet to completely mimic a healthy pancreas. Right. And so having blood sugars that go up and down, that just simply means you have diabetes. And what's really interesting now that we're, um, that people who don't have diabetes are wearing continuous glucose monitors just to see um what normal glucose functioning looks like, we're learning that all people have a lot of fluctuations in their blood glucose levels. And so having more of those when you have diabetes is not a, is not really a symptom that you failed. You know, you have that manual transmission pancreas and you, you have to do the best you can. Do the best you can without blaming mm-hmm. yourself or feeling mm-hmm. judgment. All right. So speaking of blame, Vicki left a comment for us in our Facebook group that I think a lot of people can relate to. She says, the thing about diabetes that's tougher for her, and she says, is, quote, the feeling that it's my fault, that when I was told I had prediabetes, that I should have watched it. Should people who feel like diabetes is their fault know? Well, combating the stigma of diabetes and, and fighting messages of blame and shame is a passion project of mine. So feeling like you brought it on yourself or that that you caused your own diabetes is a very common misconception. And I can see how one could easily come to that conclusion when you've been told you have prediabetes. Now, prediabetes isn't a diagnosis, it's a state. And so what it's saying is, is that, you know, you it looks like you have the genes for type 2 diabetes, and now's the time to take action to keep from tipping over. 
Now, diabetes is not a choice. And if changing weight and your eating behavior and your physical, physical activity and all of the things that increase your risk for crossing over and to actually having diabetes when you know you have the genes, if it was that easy, nobody would get it. And there would be no such thing as an obesity epidemic or we wouldn't have to be taught so much about changing eating behaviors. It's and hard so is the reality. It's hard. And, and the bottom line is diabetes is not a choice. I think that fighting messages of blame and shame is very important. And unfortunately, it's everywhere in our culture. The stigma of diabetes is highly prevalent, that people think that diabetes is a self-inflicted disease that's caused by uh, some of the cardinal sins like uh, gluttony and laziness and not caring about one's health. And that's just simply not true. That in fact, we have a lot of evidence that that is completely false, that genetics plays a huge role. Age plays a huge role as we get older. Right. Diabetes is increasing just because of that. I'm so glad to hear you as a healthcare professional just debunk that thoroughly. Yes. And, and really, unfortunately, the message is very well intentioned about preventing diabetes, that, that there are actions you can take to help reduce your risk. Some people and many people, in fact, uh, will not be able to do that. That's and right. so, so to come to the conclusion that you gave it to yourself, I understand how that that seems to be what our messaging is. But knowing that you have risks and, and that you weren't unable to keep from developing diabetes is not your fault. If that is something that you're blaming yourself for, definitely getting a little more education, recognizing that it's a very complex and multifactorial disease that is driven by a lot of things, but it is not your fault, first and foremost. Jordan says the thing that she hates about diabetes is that she can't eat like the rest of her family and friends. And we hear that from lots of people. It's hard enough, just as you talked about, it's hard enough to change our eating habits, but it's even harder to have to negotiate that with family and then feel like we're different. What would you say to Jordan? What would you say to anybody who is saying, I don't want to feel left out and I don't want to have to have this argument with my family over and over again? Honestly, a, a diabetes-friendly way of eating is really how we should all be eating. <laughs> it's a healthy, so, it's a mean, healthy it, way it, of eating. It's a healthy way of eating. Some, this is a complicated issue, but at the end of the day, you could eat whatever you want. And so what's important is that you make a choice. You could eat that cake and, or, or the pasta or the pizza, you need to decide when that's healthy for you as an individual. So I think, you know, sort of the, the can'ts and the shouldn'ts, to be really careful with that because you're making a choice and to feel empowered with your choices. So, for example, if you're going to a party and then you know there's, it's going to be loaded with carbohydrates, you plan for that a little bit. Is this a, as Maybe this is a, a party that you actually want to plan for and have some... Uh, like have a diabetes excursion there, so you're gonna you're gonna go ahead and have some some more carbs than you normally would. Mm -hmm. So you plan ahead for that. So you know that day maybe you follow a fairly low carb, you know, early in the day, and then afterwards after you have the carbs, you make sure you take if you're on insulin, you make sure you're taking the right amount. Or and if you don't if you don't, aren't on insulin, then perhaps you take a walk afterwards. But you you can plan for it. Another strategy for you know, eating with your family or friends, if it's a higher carb food, is is a smaller portion. Absolutely. Um, some people have found that they don't feel deprived if they just, like, for example, have a, a, a tablespoon of mashed potatoes instead of, oh, you know, a half a cup. Um, but that doesn't work for everybody. Some people say, you know, Susan, I know I'm kind of an all or nothing thinker and, um, you know, one piece of candy is not going to be it for me and I'll end up eating, you know, 
a the whole, whole bag, uh, the whole thing. So you, you kind of have to know yourself. But, exactly. but again, I really like to think about food choices as a trade rather than can't, don't. Or shouldn't. Yeah, yeah, those are tough it, words. One of my favorite uh, members of our Facebook group, Jane Knoll, and Cindy Liu does this as well. You know, when she knows she's going to a, a party, um, she just gets a little bit of everything. And so she doesn't feel deprived. She's getting a couple bites. And mm-hmm. and so it's like she doesn't have that deprivation feeling, which I know is really tough for people. So, yeah. But as you said, that works for some people, not for others. You kind of have to figure out for yourself what's right. Right. And, and again, think of it as a trade. So you might be trading, feeling part, but you're what you're not trading then is the high blood glucose or the excess weight or the exactly to think about it more as a as a trade and and a and a a, a choice and a choice that you're making like okay I'm making the choice here and I I do want to put a plug in here our dietitian Melinda um, talks about the 80 20 rule of eating and I think it's so important to not fall into that trap of all or nothing where it's like I'm going to eat perfectly or I'm going to be completely off my eating plan but finding a way to kind of put in places for snacks or treats every so often that you know so you don't feel that feeling of deprivation. So Susan, we know that living with diabetes for a while can take a toll. And many physicians or psychologists like yourself call this diabetes distress. And you're really an an expert on diabetes distress. Lisa Marie in our group says, I've lived more lives, more years of my life as a a person with diabetes than not. And I am so burned out, not being free and able to do what I want to do, always having to quote, take care. So -hmm. for people out there who are just so tired of having to deal with diabetes, what should they know? I always start my diabetes burnout talk with with just putting it in perspective. So diabetes is that full-time job that you didn't want (laughs) and you can't quit and the pay stinks. And so it's no wonder that over a period of time, and you don't have to have diabetes for a lot of years to start feeling the experience of burnout. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, diabetes can be a thankless job. A lot of times others don't even, it doesn't even occur to them to support you with your diabetes because they don't have any idea how much work is involved. And what goes into it. And what goes into it. In fact, one of our colleagues sat in a standard diabetes education class and she counted the number of behaviors that people were being asked to change. So that's things like learn about the content of your food, how to count carbohydrates, take your medication on time and the right dosages at the same time every day, check your feet, learn how to check your blood glucose. There's just so much. Check your feet. Yeah. So she, so, so she counted them as individual behaviors and she quit counting at 150 separate behaviors. Oh my gosh. Wow. And so no wonder you feel overwhelmed and right. burned out. And if you think about it, just in terms of human behavior, when we're doing a job, we'd like a pay. So when you're, you know, when you're doing hard work, you'd like some kind of payoff at the end. And diabetes is a setup for that, for a couple of things. So if you think about why you're, are you doing all of this hard work, it's so that nothing happens, right? And so when you think about nothing happening as a reward for, for <laughs> all of this hard work, it, you know, it makes sense that people would want to quit that job. And, and then besides things, the elements of diabetes can make it even harder because mm-hmm. some, so if, if you are working really hard and you're getting frustrating numbers or the elements of diabetes are, are, are sneaky because, you know, having um, elevated A1C, blood pressure, LDL cholesterol, those things that can jeopardize your health, well, those things don't hurt. And people can get used to remarkably high blood glucose levels. Mm-hmm. And so that if it doesn't hurt, it doesn't call you to take action. Right. You know, that makes it sort of easy to get the I quits too because it's, when you're working hard, you don't feel any better. 
and when you kind of maybe back burner diabetes, it doesn't particularly hurt. And so having ways to keep motivated often have to do with focusing on what really matters, doing having some accountability, knowing your numbers, but not, not so much getting lost in your daily numbers, but having, we call them the smoke alarms, the A1C, blood pressure, LDL, cholesterol, kind of knowing where you are at with those and working towards safer. Working towards safer. Okay, so I hear you say a couple things. As always, we're going to we're going to focus on the five numbers, A1C, blood pressure, LDL, cholesterol, EGFR, and an eye exam, making sure those numbers are as close to target as they can be or as you say safer, but working with your doctor to kind of know where you stand and know where you're focused. So so that's part of dealing with diabetes burnout is knowing here's where I am. I kind of have a general direction that helps people feel a little bit more. I don't want to say in control, but in the driver's seat a little bit. Talk about those two other things you were saying when it comes to combating, um, focusing on kind of the big picture. Tell us more about how people can avoid those feelings of just, this is just too much. Well, I think that one thing is, is keeping it in perspective. So just to know you're not alone, that most people struggle with diabetes management. And in fact, only about in our latest large-scale study where we looked at large numbers of people who have diabetes to see how many of them have all three uh, A1C blood pressure, LDL, cholesterol, so not your five, but those those three Mm -hmm. um, in Target. It was only about 25%. So that's, you know, 75% of people do not have their numbers at what would be considered Target. Right. So and, you are not alone. And in fact, um, if you have type 1 diabetes, those numbers are even lower because A1C is harder to get to target right. with type 1 diabetes. Right. Because a lot of times when you're struggling with diabetes and your numbers are elevated, you can feel like you're the only one and that somehow you're bad or you're a failure and not right. good at diabetes, which is a, a really key and common component of diabetes distress. But I think one thing that people don't get enough of, and I think this is probably one of the most important things if you have diabetes burnout, is to not only know you're not alone, but that what you do actually matters, even though it may not feel like it. So, you know, again, that idea is safer. Yes. But then another another concept that I really try to, to help people learn is it, re- it relates to a message of hope that actually though we have good data now that proves you don't have to be perfect to have well-managed diabetes. Working at what we call a healthy good enough goal. Yes. Yeah. So it's so if you can't do all of the job of diabetes because you're burned out and really nobody can do all of those 150 tasks. Right. To p- to pick the ones that are most important for you and and work towards a healthy good enough goal. So I want, I want to pause you there for a second because uh, last year we spoke with Adam Brown and he talked about, you know, when we look at our meter, like our log or we look at our CGM readout, it's so tempting to focus on the couple of numbers that weren't in range rather than looking at all the things that that were really good and that were really, you know, that we did well. And that's true of a food journal. It's true of so many things in life. And so what I hear you saying is, one, recognize that the choices you make really do matter, even if those numbers aren't necessarily where you want them to be, focusing on kind of the habits and the and the process rather than than the end result is important but two you know, to kind of resist that negative negativity bias of our brain and really focus on, I am doing these things well. Is that, am I interpreting you correctly? Yeah. And we have a lot of data to show that, 
that even some health behaviors are better than zero in terms of outcomes. So, you know, to get lost in where you made a mistake or the parts of your diabetes, all of your diabetes numbers together where you feel like you're not at goal, Mm -hmm. not to get lost in that. Because I haven't met anybody that doesn't at least have some areas of strength in some places where they're, you know, doing relatively well. Yes. So focusing on that and building on that rather than the things that we're not happy about. Mm -hmm. I will also say one thing we've really seen in our Facebook group is the importance of community and the importance of surrounding yourself with other people who are dealing with the same issues that you are, who can encourage you, who can hold you accountable. Have you seen in your work that the more people can be connected to other people, that that's helpful to them? I really believe that's the secret ingredient to any program that we do that's a group-based program is that we hope that they benefit from the content that we're able to give them. Really, the the secret ingredient to a group is the magic that happens when you experience a connection with another person who gets it. Yes. And that's from, from what I have observed in the 20 years I've been doing this is that feeling not alone, understood that there's other people who can champion your efforts, that understand that struggling with diabetes is, is normal. That is like transformative for many people. Like the magic sauce. Yeah, it really is. So Cheryl says the thing that frustrates about her about diabetes is that she has depression. And she says a lot of depression medications can raise sugar levels and it keeps me from wanting to go back on anything. So first, is that a misconception that antidepressant medications can raise blood sugar levels? Well, we have, we have mixed information on antidepressant medications and their effectiveness or how they may impact blood glucose. Mm-hmm. But I, I just want to make sure that I say uh, out loud that I'm a psychologist and not a psychiatrist. So obviously I'd rather defer, you know, any specific questions, you know, to, to ask to your medical doctor. And but, also I will interject here and say, this is just <laughs> diabetes information. You always want to talk to your doctor, your diabetes educator about anything related to your care. We're just providing general information. Right. So with so, that caveat, take it away, Susan. <laughs> so in general, antidepressants are considered safe for people with diabetes. Now, individuals may have individual reactions, and if you look at the, you know, the labels that come with antidepressant medications, you sometimes will actually see the warning of hypoglycemia. Although I have to tell you, in working in this area for 20 years, I have never seen that be a problem for people on antidepressant, but it is in the labels. The, the most common type of antidepressant that's prescribed is called an SSRI. That's like mm-hmm. Prozac, Lexapro, and Celexa, things like that. That's considered safe for people with diabetes. But again, uh, an individual may have a reaction to a specific medication but we don't really know why. And we don't actually even know why some antidepressants work for some people and not others. Another really important fact to know about antidepressants just sort of in general is that 50% of the time, the first one you try won't work. Wow. Okay. So it, so it does require a certain amount of persistence. And, and unfortunately, the side effects kick in right away. The effects take, take four to time. six weeks. So it really is a commitment to start on an antidepressant medication. But, you know, what we've also seen is that, you you know, the treatments for depression are, don't necessarily have to involve medication, but the standard of care for, for being on an antidepressant, like we always highly recommend one if you have a moderate to severe level of depression. It's often a key component for actually breaking free from depression is antidepressant treatment. But if you don't have a moderate to severe level you may be able to just as equally benefit from some form of psychotherapy that's talking to someone like me mm-hmm. or a support group or physical activity, actually. Mm-hmm. It's one of the hardest things to do when you actually have depression. 
has um, a huge benefit. It has a huge benefit, but you know, people will often say, you know, with depression, my get up and go is got up and went. And forcing yourself to do exercise when you have depression is actually quite challenging, but it, it has huge antidepressive effects. So I think the bottom line here, what I hear you saying is, if you if you think you might be depressed, understand if you are, and then seek treatment, whatever that might be. Whether it doesn't have to be medication, it could be trying to get a little more activity, it could be talking to a psychologist. But you know, do that does then have good impact on diabetes care as well. Right. Right. So in, in treating depression is important when you have diabetes beyond the fact that depression stinks. Yes. And, you know, it really affects your life. Yes. In addition, one of my patients described it like this. He says, Susan, when I have depression, it's like my give a damn is broken. And he says, you know, when your give a damn is broken, it's pretty hard to care about how many carbs you ate and checking your blood glucose and even what your A1C is. And so it makes those self-care, you know, the tasks. The so job, much harder. Right? Yes. So much harder. So man. Managing depression, getting the help that you need is just going to make so many other aspects of your health easier, is what I hear you saying. It it removes that important barrier anyway. Wow, Susan, this has been a jam-packed show with so much good information from you. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us and being a part of this. You've really given us so much good information, so thank you. Thank you. 